Hello? All right. Uh, now I can hear myself. Uh, all the mics are muted. Uh, I'm just going to clap. Welcome to Voices of the... Welcome to Voices of Democracy, a podcast exploring political participation and democracy around the world. I'm Kevin Sun. The voice you just heard is that of Marta Nunez Sarmiento, a Cuban sociologist currently living in Havana who has lived through the Cuban Revolution since its earliest days. Here she is recalling how Fidel Castro proclaimed that not only would the Cuban Revolution survive through harsh times, but put on here she is recalling how Fidel Castro proclaimed that not only would the Cuban Revolution survive through the harsh times put onto them by the U.S. embargo, but at, but that they will. Here she is recalling how Fidel Castro proclaimed that not only would the Cuban Revolution survive through harsh times put onto them by the U.S. embargo, but that they will progress and develop. To her surprise, the Cuban Revolution flourished past their difficult times, largely thanks to a strong sense of unity and their robust participatory democracy. In today's episode, with the help of Marta Nunez Sarmiento and Dr. Lauren Collins, I will be describing and discussing the participatory democracy of Cuba. First, I'll be briefly going through Cuba's political history because it will be important to have this historical background to explain the many characteristics of their political system and the way they perceive their participation and their democracy. And then I will describe how this Cuban political system functions, what kind of different organs run the system. Finally, I will be discussing Cuba today and the current struggles they face and might continue to face and how these might be important to pay attention to for a larger global audience and how the way they deal with this is also important. A brief explanation will also be dedicated to some observation I had uh, on the political participation in Brazil and Chile, uh, which will also be useful when we will be looking to apply them to Quebec. Let's get into it. In this interview by the CBC of Fidel Castro in uh, 1959, we have an exclusive glimpse at the developing ideology of Fidel Castro, who would only truly express the socialist nature of the Cuban Revolution in December of 1961. As you may have been able to hear in this clip, we have a question by the CBC reporter asking if Castro were to hold elections, would he allow the Communist Party to run in them? The nature of Castro's response is pretty familiar to us here in the West. He explains that his idea is that we would let the Communist Party run because he believes in the freedom of opinion and freedom of expression as a core idea of democracy. Such a statement by Fidel Castro is, no matter what reactions it may generate, generally agreeable. He then goes on to describe this freedom as a human right, and indeed, as we can see in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it is, Article 19. Throughout this episode, we will get to know the Cuban revolutionary system and whether or not Castro has stayed true to this ideal. But before we get into that, we need to go back even further 
back in time before the revolution to understand how this entirely new vision of democracy was created. In the wave of independence movements throughout Latin America in the 19 in the 18 in the wave of independence movements throughout Latin America in the 1820s, Cuba and Brazil remained Spanish colonies until the late 19th century. Then from 1868 to 19 then from 1868 to 1898, the Cuban people led by the independence leader Jose Martí waged two wars of independence against Spain. These wars almost led to Cuban independence until the United States went to war with Spain and then intervened militarily into Cuba. These wars almost led to Cuban independence until the United States went to war with Spain and then intervened militarily into Cuba. So Cuba is no longer a Spanish colony, but they have their affairs entirely under the authority of the United States. A few years later, in 1902, Cuba was officially granted their independence, but not really fully. At the same time as they are granted independence, the U.S. invokes the Platt Amendment, which di dictates... At the same time as they are granted independence, the U.S. invokes the Platt Amendment, which declares that the U.S. has the right to intervene in Cuban affairs at any time and to have a naval base on the island. So when the U.S. does not like the result of an election or does not like the current political climate in Cuba, they intervene. And this defines Cuban politics until up until. So when the U.S. does not like the result of an election or does not like the current political climate in Cuba, they have the right to intervene. And this defines Cuban politics all the way up until the Great Depression. From then on, this leads to a string of brutal dictatorships in Cuba. From 1928 to 1933, Cuba lived under the thumb of Gerardo Machado. This was right in the middle of the Great Depression. Spain and the United States still dictated Cuba's economy and political life. There was great immiseration during this period, and eventually, in 1933, a reformist revolution forced Machado to resign and flee. A scramble for power, including U.S.-backed candidates, reformists, and different factions of the army, has an army's chief by the name of Fulgencio Batista come on top. The reformist revolution would fail, and Fulgencio Batista would rule as a brutal dictator until 1944. From 1940 to 1952, however, Cuba does have a period of liberal parliamentary elections. Despite the election of important figures of the previous revolution, like Grau San Martin and Carlos Brio Sacaros, this period of elections never really solved the issue of corruption and political violence in Cuba. A coup led by Batista would have him back in power, and Cubans would have to live under another brutal right-wing dictatorship for another few years. Okay, I hope you're still with me. That was a brief summary of the most important points of Cuba's political history before the revolution. Basically, Cuba goes from a Spanish colony to having two wars of independence to a country whose institutions are shaped by the U.S. to several dictatorships, all interrupted by some liberal parliamentary elections. They actually have a constitution um, that was not never really fully ratified in 1940. I'll quote Helen Yaffe here. I'll quote Helen Yaffe here 
who has written several books on the political and economic history of Cuba from a lecture she gave in Slovenia and has provided for me. Probably the Cubans within a hundred year period have known more different forms of political governments than most populations. Now, picking up right where we left off, uh, the Cuban Revolution, led by Fidel Castro, manages to oust the Batista dictatorship, and the Cuban Revolutionary Government now takes power. This is now 1959, the start of the period that will be relevant to this podcast, the Cuban Revolution. The value of popular participation for the Cuban people in the revolutionary the value of political the value of popular participation the value of popular participation for the Cuban people in the revolution is already apparent in this period in fact during the war against the dictatorship in the liberated zones that the rebels controlled leaders like Fidel Castro and Che Guevara oversaw initiatives of popular participation mass organizations also see their Mass organizations are also founded in the early days of the revolution and also play a prominent role in local and national politics from the early days of the revolution up until today. These mass organizations were and still are a key element to the functioning of Cuba's participative democracy. They are extremely dense organizations that try to project their interests. Uh, they are extremely dense organizations that project their they are extremely dense organizations who project the interests of their members in all spheres of Cuban life, whether that be in the economic, political, or social. The most notable examples of mass organizations are the Central Union of Cuban Workers, the Federation of Cuban Women, and the National Association of Small Farmers, just to name a few. These three mass organizations were created during the very first few years of the revolution and now each hold from a few hundred thousand to millions of Cubans in their membership. An interesting fact to highlight here is that at the time of the revolution, the 1940 constitution that allowed the earlier parliamentary elections was instituted, but elections would not be reintroduced until 1976. Here's Dr. Collins. In 1976, a new constitution was approved through a national referendum. Some interesting facts about this constitution, the referendum will... In 1976, a new constitution was approved through national referendum. Here are some interesting facts about this constitution. The referendum for this constitution was held on February 15th of 1976, and there was a 98% voter turnout throughout the country, and the constitution was approved almost unanimously at 99.02%. Uh, Article 53 is what I found important to highlight here. The rights of assembly, demonstration, and association are exercised by manual and intellectual workers, peasants, women, students, and other sectors of the working people, for which they have the necessary means for such purposes. The social and mass organizations have all the facilities for the development of said activities in which their members enjoy the widest freedom of speech and opinion based on the unrestricted right 
based on the unrestricted right to initiative and criticism. I quoted directly from the Constitution here. The way this right is pronounced and the way it's expressed, the way that it is phrased, really helps to put into picture how much the Cuban Revolution values the participation of its people. They really insist on the inclusivity of every sector of the population and even emphasis they really insist on the inclusivity of every sector of the population and even emphasize the strength of mass organizations as a channel for participation. This constitution carries a this constitution also carries a chapter on equality, guaranteeing the right to education and healthcare to everyone without distinction of race, color, or national origin. This would later be updated to include uh, other uh, discriminated population. This would be later updated to include other discriminated populations in uh, newer versions of the Constitution, uh, notably up until today in the 2019 Constitution. This chapter also includes Article 43 dedicated to gender equality in the revolution. I'm going to quote here, this right grants women paid maternity leave and strives to this right grants women paid maternity this right grants women paid maternity leave and quote strives to create all the conditions conducive to the realization of the principle of equality end quote this last quote helps highlight how much the cuban people value the notion of progress and constant development of these ideas For the next 47 years up until today, this constitution would go through several amendments, always approved by national referendums in 1992. For the next 47 years up until today, this constitution would go through several amendments, always approved by national referendums in 1992 and in 2002 as well. In 2018, the constitution would be entirely redrafted to be consulted by the Cuban population. In 2018, the Constitution would be entirely redrafted to be consulted by the Cuban population. We will get into this in just a bit. But before we do, I need to explain the political system introduced with the Constitution of 1976. The 1976 Constitution introduced what... Uh, they call the organs of people's power, which essentially are the three levels of governance that we are familiar with here in Quebec, the municipal, provincial, and then uh, the national or federal in our case here. A few characteristics to note for Cuba's political system that are distinct to Cuba. The 1976 Constitution in first elections are non-party. First elections are non-party. Second is that uh, the delegates, except at the highest levels of government, are not paid. They have their own career and attend parliamentary sessions separate from this career and their own personal life. Uh, 
and this is all unpaid. Third is that the delegates are accountable to their population by law. They have to constantly update their population on their involvement in government. They have to render accounts, and these delegates can be recalled if their people wish, uh, if the people of their constitution. They have to update their population on their involvement in government and render accounts. And these delegates can be recalled if the people of their constituent uh, wish for them to be recalled. And there are several cases of this uh, throughout the history of uh, this. And there are several cases of this throughout the history of the Cuban Revolution since the Constitution. At the National Assembly, voting and candidacy is at the National Assembly, voting and candidacy age is 18 years old, while the age for provincial and municipal levels is 16. Now, the different levels of government are municipal, provincial, and uh, national again. Uh, there are 169 municipalities that make up the municipal assemblies. As of 2023 today, the provincial assemblies representing the 15 provinces of Cuba were eliminated the, in the newest 2019 constitution. So the provincial uh, assemblies are, were completely removed in uh, the most recent constitution, but there, are, there were 15 of them before uh, this constitution, before 2018. The National Assembly also used to have 605 delegates, but was recently reduced to 470 for the 2023 elections back in March of 2023. As I said, there are no political parties. Individuals are nominated by the people of their locality, starting from as close as their own street and are elected up to the Municipal Assembly. They cannot submit their own candidacy. This is important. They are nominated by their peers based on their merits and their involvement in their locality, uh, what organizations they're part of, etc. And then they participate in the elections for the municipal assembly based on their own involvements. This also goes for the elections for the national assembly and for the provincial assembly. Uh, of course, the provincial assembly does not exist anymore. Half of the delegates at the national assembly come from the municipal assemblies. So this process of being elected up and being nominated all the way up. And then the other half are from nominating assemblies. Nominating assemblies are where different organs of mass organizations and people's councils nominate candidates. And then these candidates are submitted to a yes or no vote uh, in the elections. Uh, this system has undergone change. Um, the national now this system has undergone a lot of change, so it's not exactly the same anymore, but I'm presenting it as it was before uh, this newest constitution. The National Assembly is the highest organ of power in the Cuban government. They hold what we know as the uh, legislative power, what we would recognize as the legislative power. Permanent commissions and different ministries also are seated in the National Assembly, and uh, they meet twice every year. The National Assembly meets twice every year. In between these meetings, the permanent commissions and ministries where individuals are paid deliberate on decisions, draft documents and consultations, uh, draft policy, all that. 
something that is consistent in this system as it has been throughout this period of the Cuban Revolution since the 1976 Constitution is that all major decisions and the most important changes to law are all subject to referendum and consultation uh, of the population. What is important to note and uh, what is something that I have stressed throughout this episode is that Cuban politics is always changing. The leadership of the country, the Cuban Communist Party, constantly addresses the population on the nation's issues and the development of the revolution. They draft resolutions, policies, changes to law, entirely new constitutions to address these issues in a constantly changing world that shapes Cuba. This means that the Cuban political system that exists today is different from the system from the 1976 constitution because in 1976, Cuba was different. The very system that I am trying to describe right now is also entirely different. I am not even able to keep up with the recent changes because of how complex and constantly developing their system is, especially since a new constitution was drafted by the Cuban Communist Party and put into law in 2019. Uh, which was approved by a referendum, of course. I can give some key figures to help grasp just how complex the constant development of Cuban politics is. For several months before April of 2021, for several months before April of 2011, the Cuban population participated in open debate on a very famous document in Cuba, drafted by the Cuban Communist Party, or the CCP, referred to as the Guidelines. This document contained 291 guidelines, tackling several different issues on social and economic policy. Throughout these months, upwards of 163,000 meetings were organized around the country to debate the Guidelines. Nine million people participated. Uh, the Cuban population is 11.5 million. Uh, and over three million opinions were condensed into se about 780,000 distinct recommendations. Following this consultation, 68% of the guidelines were modified. This is just one example among many of the interaction between the CCP and all the different channels that the Cuban people have to participate in politics and really shape this change. This is just one example among many of the interaction between the CCP and all of the different channels that the Cuban people have to participate in politics and participate in the development of the revolution. It is a core tenet of their participatory democracy. Now, I could go on and on and on and on about different channels and different ways the Cuban people have for participating in Cuban politics and its economy and its social life, but this podcast would go on for hours and would more resemble the length of the PhD thesis that Dr. Collins so graciously provided for me. Most details here that I described, the number of members, how elections are conducted, the number of municipalities or delegates, matter very little to the broader subject of this research. 
these details were only necessary as accessories to the larger picture that I'm trying to paint here. Through Cuba's complex political history, through Cuba's even more complex political system, we can observe one thing that is consistent, and that is that the Cuban system is always developing. Cuba's politics is always changing according to every political situation, every economic situation, according to the problems of every province, every municipality, every family, and every Cuban. Cuba's politics is always changing according to every political situation, every economic situation, every social situation, according to the problems of every province, every municipality, every family, and every Cuban. I also don't want to give the impression that because of all these changes and the constant development of Cuban participatory democracy, that Cuba is in any way divided or unstable. Here's Dr. Collins on the unity of the revolution, right from the start of it. Here's Dr. Collins on the un unity of the revolution, right from the start. Now here is Marta Núñez-Sarmiento on the process of participation in Cuba. This top-down, bottom-up process that uh, Marta described to me is the very ear-to-the-ground approach that the Cuban Revolution has had, where the leadership, the CCP, guides the population and shapes policy in order to better the living situation of all Cubans and to uplift all marginalized populations and all the uh, core tenets that they describe in their constitution. Then the leadership consults the population through the organs and channels that I have been describing to complete this process and include the population in a holistic democratic process. This complex process and unique vision of democracy is precisely what has helped the Cuban people not only survive through, but also develop past a brutal U.S. blockade of Cuba, almost unanimously condemned by the UN General Assembly as a human rights violation, the collapse of the Soviet Union, which represented Cuba's only remaining support for material. This complex process and unique vision of democracy is precisely what has helped the Cuban people not only survive through, but also develop and progress past a brutal US blockade of Cuba almost unanimously condemned by the United Nations General Assembly as a human rights violation, the collapse of the Soviet Union, which represented Cuba's only remaining support for material aid and only trade partner, and on top of this, become a leader in surviving and defeating the most recent COVID-19 pandemic. Of course, the Cuban revolution remains imperfect. Here's Marta Núñez Sarmiento on some of the effects of Cuban machismo. These issues and these questions are constantly addressed, and the Cuban leadership is notorious for addressing these issues and being accountable to their population. Before I move on and being accountable, 
these issues and these questions are constantly addressed. And the Cuban Rev These issues and these questions are constantly addressed. And the Cuban leadership is notorious for addressing these issues and being accountable to their population. Before I move on, I also wanted to give a picture of a new generation of Cuba's leadership, most exemplified by the current president, Miguel Diaz-Canel. He is the first president of Cuba who is not either of the Castro brothers. In fact, He's the first president of Cuba and first secretary of the Cuban Communist Party born after the revolution. Here's Marta on this new generation and how even the Cuban youth participates in politics. Now that I've gone over all of what I wanted to explain about Cuba's participatory democracy, here's a special note on a few studies I found regarding democratic participation in Brazil and Chile. Here, Leonardo Avritzer notes that there were a lot of initiatives in Brazil in the 1980s to uplift marginalized poor and indigenous populations to participate in politics and in their economic and social life. These, initiative, these initiatives stemming from Brazil's constitution in 1988 take the form of councils at every scale from small towns all the way to Brazil's, some of Brazil's biggest cities. These councils form some of the channels that are available to the people to address their issues and participate in their local politics. Also, I mentioned in the first episode that there is a comparative study on the political participation and youth movements in Quebec and Chile. This study was extremely relevant to my research and to this podcast and describes the this study was extremely relevant to my study and uh, describes the many parallels between the Chilean student movement and the Maple Spring protests in Quebec in 2012. This study was one of the first ones I had looked at when I started my research a few months ago. It was uh, able to stay relevant to this podcast because it highlights the high potential that youth movements have and how strong or it was able to stay relevant to this podcast because it highlights the high potential that youth movements have and how strong organization can effectively enact change. I hope that the reason that I thought looking at Cuba's participatory democracy was so important, and it should be now at least more than apparent. Next episode, we are going to be able to look at Quebec's political participation, and finally see what we can learn from Cuba, Brazil, and Chile.